Hello, everybody, and welcome to Voices and Visions. I am Jim Laskowski, and I'm here to uh, hopefully give a quicker intro than usual. I always say that, and then it winds up being too long, but uh, I guess I'm just excited to talk with you, or to vent, or to uh, express my gratitude and joy for yet another episode with today's guest. This is his fourth appearance, and it's amazing to think... Yeah, I initially just contacted him to, you know, talk about his films and his career. And then lo and behold, I find out he's, you know, this incredibly knowledgeable uh, film buff in his own right. And now I'm like, I really want to know what, what, what some of his favorite films are or what films that he thinks are special or titles that he can turn other people on to. And so that's how this sort of evolved. It started out with, um, you know, underrated films talk and then it you know turned into well let's talk about underrated films of the 90s and now we do underrated films of the 80s and i'm sure we'll just keep continuing um i really 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 hope and pray that uh this continues um you know it's it's funny at one point during our conversation he mentions he'll be in town and it's like oh this is so cool so it's exciting to present um this episode again because you know, I've, I've obviously, I was really thrilled with the last two that I've returned with, uh, particularly the last one for a lot of reasons, a lot of personal reasons, but there's just, uh, you know, a, a lot going on that I've struggled with. And when something like this comes along and something positive, uh, sort of reaffirms my, my feelings that, uh, it's, it's worth continuing this, uh, it's worth continuing a lot of things, uh, my passions and certainly, uh, trying to connect other people to the arts in a positive way. That's kind of what my goal is with the podcast, whether if it's just a quick 15 minute interview or it's an hour and a half long conversation with a great actor, writer, director, uh, producer, a, a multitude of talent with, Keith Gordon, of course, and you know how I feel about him. I've talked about him on previous episodes, so I'm not going to continue. Just please visit nowplayingnetwork.net for this show and other shows, other great shows. My gosh, you have Christmas movies, actually, Genre Grinder, which comes up in the midst of this conversation, um, supporting characters hosted by the great Bill Ackerman, um, Director's Club with Brad and Al. I was recently on an episode. Me and Patrick and Brad and Al reviewed the under <clears throat> the uh, the new Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You'd be very surprised by my reaction. Uh, I'm still wrestling with it, and I'll probably continue to do so, but in a good way, in my opinion. Not not like I'm not dismissing the film. I'm not saying it's not great, but for me, there's flaws. Anyway, listen to that over at directorsclubpodcast.com and, of course, voicesvisions.net. And now, for the fourth time, and one of the very best guests to appear on the show, Mr. Keith Gordon. I always give a little introduction to whomever I'm going to talk with. And, well, in, to, in, in the case of today's guest, this happens to be his fourth appearance, and I'm, I feel blessed. I feel really grateful. 
and, and I've listed his myriad of accomplishments as an actor, writer, and director in the past. But, uh, you know, as most of the listeners know at this point, he's a true blue film fan. And he's contributed to other podcasts, uh, Blu-ray special features and commentaries. And all, all of this conveys his incredible passion for one of my favorite art forms. He does so much and does it so well. Uh, not too long ago, I actually uh, re-watched Mother Night. And it remains one of my very favorite adaptations of Vonnegut. And we all know how I feel about Waking the Dead, which uh, apparently just had a, uh, a, a Blu-ray uh, updated Blu-ray release uh, just just today, as a matter of fact, it comes out. So, uh, yeah, he's also hard at work as a TV director for shows like Fargo, Homeland, Legion, The Leftovers, Better Call Saul, Dexter, The Killing, and another one of my all-time favorites, Rectify. Uh, so the last time we spoke, I, I sang the praises of his excellent efforts with the Season 2 finale of Legion, and I wanted to have him back on for what's become a yearly tradition in which we showcase some underrated films together. Please welcome one of my very favorite people to talk with, Mr. Keith Gordon. Hi. Wow, what a nice introduction. Now I'm sitting here sort of blushing and feeling... Nicely embarrassed. When you list down your credits, it, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we did talk last time, you know, in the case of television, you're, you're there to serve the story and, 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 and its creator in general. But the fact that you've played a role and certainly an effective one and a great one as a director in a lot of these great TV shows is that mainly what you've been doing within the past year? Because I know you, you said recently you were working on uh, another episode of Homeland. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I, I continue to work in TV, although I've, I've actually scaled it back a certain amount because I really miss doing my own projects, and you know, whether they're film or TV. Uh, and I was working in TV at such a rate doing episodes of other people's shows that I just had no time or energy left for my own things. So there was kind of a bit of a Rubicon um, crossed starting around two years ago, but it's been, you know, where I've really cut back more and more. And I'm only doing now a few things like, you know, Homeland is, it's just such a, I've worked on the show so long and and I like the people so much and this is the last year. So I really wanted to go back and be part of it. Uh, You know, going back to do more of Fargo this, this winter, because I love that show. It's amazing to work on. I love it. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Um, but I am doing a lot less. I'm passing on some very interesting things. I'm I'm missing. I'm, I'm not doing a lot of things that would be wonderful to be a part of. Just to try to open up enough time and energy to get back to my own projects, which by nature were starting to just wither on the vine because I just wasn't around. And when I was around, I was like sleeping to catch up on you know because TV is exhausting. It's wonderful, but it's you know, it's kind of, you know, you spend five, six, seven weeks and it's all consuming and it's all you do and it's 16 and 18 hour days. Um, and I just realized I'm getting old enough that I can't do that all the time and have anything left for the features I'd want to make or a couple of TV projects in development. So I'm now trying to rebalance the best I can. And obviously this is an amazingly huge first world problem and I don't want to (laughs) at all sound like I'm complaining. This is a great, you know, dilemma to have. Uh, but I'm trying to find the right balance of, of doing some episodic with on shows that I find exciting. And I'm going to be going to do, there's a new show coming up that AMC is doing called dispatches from elsewhere, which I just, 
I loved the pilot script and I was like, Oh, I really don't want to add another show, but this is really fun. Um, so, you know, I am going to do some of it, but I'm going to really also try to leave spaces to, to chase my own, my own, uh, you know, Holy grails as well. You should, because your, uh, your work in the past, certainly, uh, like I've mentioned before is, 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 is really incredible. And, uh, I, I want to see more work from you. <laughs> that's all the, the, that's all the, it comes down to is, uh, you know, more original work and more adaptations, more directorial efforts. So that, that excites me to hear that you are transitioning into your, um, into your own projects as, as great as it's been to see you work so, so steadily, uh, with, with television, and, including Noah Hawley, who I just, this, this, again, I don't know how he tackles the amount of work that he does. Cause he's got a movie coming out. Uh, it, it, I, I honestly don't. I mean, I know Noah, and it doesn't help me to know him to know that how does he do this. I, I you know, and you talk to him about it, and he's like, well, it's just what I do. But it's like the guy, I mean, he has a movie coming out. He wrote a novel. He's show running two television shows. Most people I know who are running show running one television show are like barely alive. Um, you know, uh, and Noah has a family, and he's devoted to his family, and he, they live you know, he lives in Austin a lot of the time. So he's traveling constantly between Austin and LA. And I, I honestly don't know how he does it. And he does it with a ridiculously low level of, of fuss and muss. You know, he's not a guy who ever seems that stressed out, at least on the outside. He's incredibly zen about everything. Um, but yeah, his movie's wonderful. I saw an early cut of it and I thought it was great. Um, nice. I, I think it probably, you know, I'm sure they're aiming for the fall because it's that kind of a movie. But yeah, how he does it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, more than anyone else I, I can think of, in, certainly in the current environment, there shouldn't be any way to accomplish what he does in the time he has. And somehow he does it. And does it all so great. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't, yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't uh, watched the, uh, the, I guess, well, now the series finale uh, of Legion that just aired yesterday, but uh, everybody knows. Yeah, I actually haven't yet. It's on my TiVo, so I haven't. <laughs> yeah, so I'm so stoked yeah. for it. So stoked, uh, and um, also sad that it's going. But I I know that all good things have to come to an end, and certainly three season shows now they're not that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's a self contained story. Well, it's funny. You know, in a lot of Europe, particularly the UK, that's always been the tradition. It's it's a, it's it's kind of uniquely American, as far as I know, that this idea of just keep a series going forever. Uh, and it's really an economic thing, not an artistic thing. Most places, you just do the story however long the story should be. You know, it, it's like there's plenty of things that it's like, oh, this is two seasons and that's all we want to do. And, and and the artistic is put first. And I think there's a lot of shows here that have gone on maybe well past their expiration date. Uh, you know, I felt that way personally about a show I worked on a lot about Dexter. You know, there was originally that show was sort of designed to be like a five year journey. And then because it was doing so well, they kept extending it. And I actually felt it lost something later on as it it just became like, well, okay, now we have to just come up with with a way to keep going. And I think that that's a real danger in, in, in this kind of very American thing of like, well, as long as it's, as long as it's paying the bills, we're just going to keep it on the air, whether it's the right thing or not. So I actually think the choice to sometimes say, Hey, I can tell this story and three years lets me tell the story well. And, leave it in a place that I feel good about to me is actually in a way a much better choice. Even if it leaves fans like myself, whatever, feeling sad and wishing for more, or sometimes 
getting what you wish for and just creating more just to create it isn't always the best thing. Yeah. And, and some of the other shows you've worked on, including The Leftovers and, and, and Rectify, uh, they, they, they didn't need to you know, go on for nine seasons. They, they, they satisfyingly told their story and had enough emotional resonance to where you felt closure with, with those characters. And the- yeah, I, I think Leftovers is a great example of a show that I think would have really been hurt to, keep, to stretch it out. Yeah. I think it, I, I think that show is incredible and I'm so honored to be a part of it. And I think the fact that it really had a beginning, a middle and an end quite literally over three seasons, you know, each season was kind of the beginning, the middle and the end. Um, I really think added to the strength of it. I think three more years of it, it would have just started becoming manufactured. And, and I think this way it really was like a great novel and it told the story and it got to the end of its story and it, it finished the story. And I, I think that's, that's something I wish more shows would do and I wish, wish more networks would do because most of them, again, have that sense of we're going to ride the horse till it drops. There are a few places that I think are now starting to get more of an attitude of, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe less better is more. Yeah. yeah um, but but that's it's a newer thing here. Um, again, like you look at TV in the UK and they've been doing that forever. Mm-hmm. But here it's a newer idea to go, eh, maybe let's just do as much of this as is right, not as much as we can get away with. Yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting. I kind of want to go back to the beginning really quickly before we get to our our, our lists of underrated '80s films. I, I I'm going to be doing another uh, Directors Club episode on Brian De Palma, uh, a redux, uh, a redo, if you will, because the first time we talked De Palma was a long time ago. It was like six years ago. And this episode in particular has kind of gone down as being pretty infamous and controversial just because we had someone on, we had two guests, which we'd never done before. One thought he was a hack and the the other thought he was a genius. So so there was a lot of yelling um, and it was a little intense at times. And so we kind of want to have a little bit more disciplined approach to talk about, uh, you know, some of the incredible work that De Palma has done. And I just wanted to hear, because I don't think we've talked about this, but your earliest experience working with him on home movies since having, having rewatched it, even though it's kind of hard to find, um, Uh, you, you, you were, you were clearly playing him more or less, particularly in the whole spying on your parents angle, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, no, that definitely the story, well, the story was, the home movies is a fascinating story and, and, and we can go as far into it as you want. It, it was, it, the project was, Brian was teaching independent filmmaking at Sarah Lawrence College right. um, and kind of got the brainstorm that the only way to really teach a bunch of young filmmakers how to make a film was to make one. So he dug out an old story of his, a treatment he'd written years earlier uh, that was sort of rooted in his family. I mean, it was a, an extremely exaggerated comic version of his family, but um, it it basically was, uh, you know, it's sort of his 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 cartoon version of his family. And he went to the students. He said, "Okay, you guys are going to take the story. You're going to write a script. You're going to, uh, you know, be most of the crew on the film." And that was sort of how where it came out of it. And Brian directed it. And it was a professional bunch of actors, and Kirk Douglas was in it, and Nancy Allen, and Vince Gardenia, and all sorts of cool people, Garrett Graham. But the crew were, were the students, and the script was written by the students um, off of Brian's story. And it was an amazing educational experience. And I, as somebody at that age, I was, I guess, 
17 at the time or 18 I don't write, and I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so even though I got hired as an actor, it was like the perfect job because like I got to hang around and watch Brian De Palma teach how to direct a movie by directing a movie, <laughs> uh, which was just insane. And I feel like was a brilliant idea. And, uh, I was so lucky to get to be a part of it. Um, so it was, it, it was kind of an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and, uh, that was my first dealings with him. And it was very funny because I came within about two inches of it not happening because they were keeping the profiles very, very low. So my agents called me and I was a young actor sort of just starting out. And, um, they basically called me and said, there's a student film that's casting. Do you want to go in for it? And I was like, I don't know. A student film. I, I was you know, already starting to work in theater in New York. I was like, I don't sort of really want to do a student film. They said, well, they're casting on your block. So I was like, okay. So I went and went to the audition and it was only there that they explained that, yeah, this is Brian De Palma. And I was like, oh my God, because if it had been about six blocks away, I would never have done it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I read for the students and they liked me and then I went and met Brian and I was, of course, completely excited and thrilled because I was a film fan and he was like Brian De Palma. So it was like, <laughs> I was very nervous, uh, but he was great. And I ended up doing two films with him and learning a ton and, and really enjoying him as a director. I mean, he... It's funny, Brian doesn't have a huge reputation as a director of actors. It's not what people think of him, right. uh, you know, because they think of the thriller aspects. They think of, but he's great with actors. He's really fun. There's a reason I think that actors, you know, with John John Lithgow, or work with him over and over and over again because he really likes actors to try things, and he's very encouraging of, well, we got that version. Let's do a different version. Um, he's you know, he's got a playfulness that his technical expertise would seem not to imply necessarily, uh, but he gets that acting is not technical. And so while he's amazing with a camera, I mean, he's essentially kind of his own cinematographer. I mean, he knows more about lighting and than, than all, I think a lot of DPs. He also appreciates that acting is a very different beast. So it's really fun to work for him as an actor. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And he was very kind to me. I mean, I, I have nothing but, but great memories of being part of, of, of his, his films. I mean, it was, it was sort of thrilling. And in terms of playing the young him, it, it is interesting because we talked about it when I was doing home movies and, and, and the character in Dress to Kill was sort of a young him as well. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he, I he would invent too. things and, but he was always very, he didn't want me to do an imitation of him. And that was something we talked about. He said, you know, yes, this came out of my experience. He said, but I don't want you to try to do me. Because he said, the character isn't me. You know, it was inspired by experiences I had. He said, but I think if you end up getting caught up as an actor in trying to do a young version of me, it's going to be stilted and you'll be putting your energy in the wrong place. And I thought it was really good advice. Uh, and it was really important to, to differentiate. And I think probably a lot of filmmakers deal with this, to differentiate between this was inspired by my experiences as a kid, as opposed to, oh, no, this character is literally supposed to be me. Uh, and he was very articulate and clear about about how important that difference is. Yeah, and it's a, it's a it's you described it a little bit as like a cartoon, but it yeah, I mean it it does have you can tell that it's personal, at all the while being you know kind of goofy and silly, and certainly when you have an incredible comedic presence like Garrett Graham around. Uh, <laughs> You're, you're bound to you're, you're bound to laugh and it's a yeah it's a really interesting film it's 
it's something that you can tell like paved the way for what he would eventually go on to do in a much more sort of controlled and uh, with genre filmmaking and things like that and I mean, a lot of people do touch upon mainly like, oh, yeah, when you think of De Palma, you think of incredible cinematography and uh, memorable shots and the split diopter and uh, uh, just his control of, of the camera is, is apparent in nearly every film. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's good to hear that he does care about the acting processes because some people don't focus on that as much. I mean, I, start, I started to have an even deeper appreciation for him after seeing, uh, you know, Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow's documentary. Cause oh, was, isn't that great? Yeah, it was just like him telling, you know, stories about what it was like making each film. And you get to see clips of the films and what, he, you know, his experiences. And that... Really, that for, for any film fan, I really recommend that movie because he's so, he's so good at telling stories. He's so entertaining, but also so educational uh it's really fun but you end up really getting a lot of insight into the process and he's he's so self-critical which i also think is admirable he's so willing to say yeah that movie didn't work and here's why and you know it's it's kind of a really unusual you know i i i was i thought it was pretty enthralling i mean you know now i'm a huge film buff i don't know if it would interest people who aren't but if you're into movies it's a and you haven't seen it it's really worth seeing yeah, I really like that approach to that documentary. It made me want, you know, every every director to have that kind of approach for, you know, whenever there's a, a, a documentary that covers an entire filmmaker's work. Heck, they could do one uh, on you and and your experiences because you're so <laughs> you're so good at articulating and, it. And all the remaining alive members of my family would watch it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, I would. I would have a whole premiere if I could, like at the, at the Chicago theater for it. But um, yeah, I uh, gosh, now I just now I think about it. Now I want to program a Keith Gordon Film Festival. Mm, that, get, let's get the prints. Let's let's make this happen. <laughs> in Chicago, I mean, uh, we're shooting Fargo in Chicago this year, so you know, if nothing no else, we finally get to see each other. So yeah, yeah, no kidding, that'd be great. Uh, wow, you're shooting Fargo in Chicago? That's awesome. Yes, they're doing Fargo this year is going to be shot in Chicago. Um, and it's it's going to be. I don't know much about the next season yet. I mean, right. Noah is his usual very you know secretive self this far away. Um, so I don't know much more than has been in like just in the trades. But it's you know it's now taking place theoretically in a bigger city. I, I believe they're using it Chicago for Kansas City, unless they've changed that. But it's supposed to be Kansas City, I think, in the seventies. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I think I heard uh, that too. So while it's being called Fargo, I think Fargo is more a state of mind and a certain Midwestern state of being, but this is going to be a much more urban version of that. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because the great thing about Noah, and it goes back to something we were talking about before is he won't do something unless he feels excited about it. It's like part of the reason there's been this long between the Fargo seasons is that he like, you know, FX was more than anxious for him to do more, but he won't do it until he's got a story that he thinks is really going to work right. So the fact that there's this long pause and then obviously had he had a eureka moment uh, means that I'm sure he's on to something. I know it's going to deal a lot with race and racism, which I think is a great thing to be dealing with right now. Uh, and Chris Rock is going to be the lead. Um, oh, yeah. That's cool. And uh, I, I know that it's going to involve two different organized crime families, one Italian, one African-American, and their relationship over time. Um, but that's literally about as much as I know. Uh, but that's enough for me to go, wow, I mean, forget directing it. I can't wait to see it. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, definitely. So let's uh, let's launch into our uh, our lists here because we uh, yes, we have we have several titles, some of which I have not seen. Uh, I th- I think most of them maybe I have, and uh, we we I, I feel like we touched upon one title in particular uh, when we when we discussed your experience with uh, the singing detective because of uh, pennies from sure. heaven, and that's yes, definitely that was a, a huge. Penny. I mean, I- Talk about talk about an overlooked and misunderstood film. Certainly, in its time, even more than now. I mean, so, it's funny when we, you and I were communicating about this whole, you know, overlooked films and what does that really mean? And it's always very confusing because, you know, some of these films that we talk we were talking about are like more, you know, oh, more forgotten now, but they weren't in their time. Others were forgotten in their time and now started to find a reputation. It, it's 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 a vague thing to figure out. Well, what fits and. Mm-hmm. So I try to leave out things that were really obviously way too big, like whatever, The Shining or Say Anything or Reds. And then I try to avoid things that were so obscure that no one has ever seen them. Like there's a German film I love from the 80s called The Last Hole, which literally I had to spend three years to get a VHS copy of just speaking it out. So I try to find things somewhere in the middle. But there are probably things that people wouldn't think of as as overlooked or forgotten or would, and it's kind of a hard thing to define. And Penny from Heaven is an interesting case because – when it came out, it was an utter disaster yeah. uh, because people in the U.S. were just not yet exposed to Dennis Potter very much. His stuff hadn't been on PBS, I think, yet uh, particularly, or if it was, not many people had seen it. Um, so people did not know that Potter has this very specific and surreal style of storytelling that he was playing with where characters would burst into song, but they would be lip syncing to old songs. And it, it's very artificial and it's very weird and it's very Brechtian and it's kind of brilliant. But I went to a big preview screening uh, of it, and they released it strangely as a, as a Christmas movie. Huh. I guess because somebody at the studio thought it's a musical. Uh, you know, completely depressing, weird, pleasing musical for the whole yeah. family. <laughs> and so I went to the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, which was this great old theater. It was like a two thousand seat gigantic palace. I don't think it even exists anymore, but it was always the best place to see movies. Uh, so I was very, I didn't know much about it. It was Steve Martin. It was like, oh, this would be interesting. So, and by like half of the movie, two thirds of the audience had walked out. Wow. I mean, people just were leaving in droves. They just didn't know what they were watching. They thought it was terrible. I actually thought it was terrible for about two thirds of it because again, the preliminary ad campaigns had been like this sort of a touching, fun musical. You know, it was like sort of That's nothing had been like yeah. care people that you're watching this experimental filmmaking essentially uh and it was only about two-thirds of the way through the movie i should go wait a minute this is kind of genius but it's really weird and then by the end of it i thought that's amazing um and then i would tell my friends about it and like but i try to prepare them but the film was a terrible bomb at the time because again people just didn't know what to make of it and what it was and i think now it's it's sort of been rehabilitated critically if not commercially i still think people don't really know about it but i think people now write about it uh with much more respect but at the time people just trashed it as like well what is this thing um but it was just dennis potter who i think is one of the great dramatists of the second half of the 20th century and one of the things he experimented with was this form and you know there i i, I became a huge fan and i i tracked down the original pennies from heaven which has been a miniseries on british television and then Singing Detective came along, which was a, a, an incredible miniseries. And then I, uh, uh, he did a piece called Lipstick on Your Collar that had that same format. And then I found myself re-watching other Potter works that weren't all musicals. And some of them were just great, interesting, odd 
dramas and uh, but he was always experimenting with form and, and ways to tell stories. And so I was a huge fan and, and, and kind of kept up with his work. And I, there was a feature made of his, uh, a piece of his called Brimstone and Treacle, uh, which probably should qualify for this list. I think it may have been the 80s, actually, hmm. uh, which is an amazing piece of filmmaking uh, by Richard Longcrane. Again, originally had been a, a, a British TV drama. Um, so I was a huge fan. And then there came along this announcement they were going to make Singing Detective as a U.S. film and that Potter had adapted it. And I was like, oh, my God, what an amazing thing to get to work on. And it was announced with – it was always, like, huge directors and huge actors. It was always, like, it was, it was going to be Jack Nicholson in the lead, and then it was going to be Dustin Hoffman in the lead, and Barry Levinson was going to direct it, and wow. I think Bob Rafelson was going to direct it. It was like it – it went through all these incarnations, and it never happened, which is not really surprising because Pennies from Heaven had been a commercial failure, and – it's a weird, weird experimental piece of storytelling. Absolutely. <clears throat> and so kind of I finally ended up – I forgot. I mean I tried to get in the door a couple of times and have meetings on it. Nobody wants to talk to me because it was like we're not making this unless we get you know Oscar-winning A-list people. Uh, cut to you know 10 years later or so, um, and uh, I get this phone call from my agent that – that Mel Gibson's going to produce a, 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 the, the script as, as a feature and do it very small, and that they'd had a director who fell out because they didn't feel they could do it on the kind of budget that Mel was talking about, and Robert Downey was going to play the lead, and I guess Robert Downey had brought me up as a possible director because he knew me from back to school, and he knew that I was working sort of in the indie world, and I was used to making things for no money. So... I went in and met with them and talked about how you could do it for a tiny budget and got the job. So in this kind of very odd, kismity, yeah. how lucky can you be roundabout way, I got to actually work on a piece of Dennis Potter material, which, you know, he was already, he had died. He was, there, was, there wasn't going to be any more coming along. Um, so uh, it was an incredible thing to get to work on. And uh one of the most challenging experiences I ever had because we did. I had a very small budget for what we were trying to accomplish, and there were a lot of difficulties, but it was also incredibly rewarding, and I I loved the experience. Um, and, you know, the, the, the film was very controversial. A lot of people didn't like it as much as the miniseries, and, you know, they're probably right because really Potter is at his best, I think, when he's got the space to flesh things out slowly and sure. build things sure. slowly, and I feel like in some ways, even though he did the adaptation, uh, even even he had the editing himself down from a whatever it was six and a half hour, seven hour story to a ninety minute version. I, I just think there's no way you could keep the feeling of richness. So I, I kind of I can't really argue with people who say, well, the miniseries is better. It's like, yeah, you know what? I think so too. And I did the film, and I still think the miniseries is better. But I also felt you know excited and happy and proud with what we did, and really excited to have been a part of it and just to get to work on his writing and to work with, with, with Downey and, to, and, and Mel who was wonderful in the movie. Mel produced the film and financed it, but he also played supporting part and he was great. Um, so, but that was a case of, yeah, talk about a a weird series of events ending up with you being, doing something you never thought you'd get to do. And it all started with that day that I saw or the night I saw Pennies from Heaven in New York and watched everyone walk out. I know, isn't that amazing? That that narrative alone is pretty pretty remarkable to think about. Like you're sitting in a movie theater, having an experience, connecting with something, and it's, it's it reminds me of um, 
you know, even when I saw Boogie Nights for the first time in a crowded movie theater in the suburbs and seeing people walk out, seeing people complain at the end of the movie, uh, and me having the completely different reaction of like, well, that to me was almost like how I felt when I saw Pulp Fiction. Like it had this energy. It, it was clearly influenced by so many different things and it just spoke to me. It clicked with me. It connected with me. And then, you know, cut to several years later and I got to, you know, meet Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> in New York at a movie theater when he's doing a Jonathan Demme retrospective. And to me, like that whole narrative is kind of surreal in of itself for me to actually be able to, you know, say hello to my favorite working director today. <laughs> and well, I've always heard, I mean, he does sound like he's a really good guy. I mean, I've yeah, never gotten, seems like it. I'm sort of sad about because I, I, I think I agree with you. I, I think he's probably my favorite. Sure. I, I can't think of anybody I, I admire more. I mean, of people who are making films right now, I think he's, he is probably the most incredible filmmaker of our generation. And I've always heard that, you know, he's, he, again, is a film lover that he, is an approachable human being. Everybody I know whoever has dealt with him has said nothing but nice things, which is kind of a great thing when somebody's sort of a genius and you really don't want to hear that they're, you know, awful, which sometimes happens. Oh, sure. But in his case, it really does sound like he's a good person, which, which makes me very relieved and happy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned just the, 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 the critical response to pennies from heaven. It's really interesting to think, uh, I, I want to say it was Ebert who, trashed the thing i think mo- i think a lot of critics did the, you know oh everybody did yeah no and, one liked and it was and it was a bomb and it was around the time that et came out so nobody was ready for this film yes well and it was you know and, and it was just yeah i mean i mean carpenter talked about that a lot because that was that was the film that sort of got him to rethink a lot of what he was doing in his career and i kind of, in some ways led to doing you know, other, I mean, you know, two of the movies on my list were two Carpenter films from, from the eighties, which was, you know, escape from New York and the thing, which I think, you know, are arguably for me, maybe his two best films. I think they're both remarkable movies and they were made back to back a year apart. I think they're both, you know, hold up incredibly well, but the thing was a perfect example of a film that was just, I think, you know, he was such with the ET element, but I also just think it was just, everybody decided there was enough blood and gore in movies and now we're going to take a stand. Mm-hmm. And his movie became the movie that just everybody decided to take the stand on, yeah. uh, which was sort of ironic because I think the thing is, first of all, hysterically funny at times. And I think it's while, it, yes, it has a lot of blood and violence, it also is so smart and playful and um, satiric and full of ideas and full of philosophy and full of so many things that that blood and guts was actually going towards. I mean, I think there are. You could probably name a million movies that were more egregious in their use of violence to no good end. Whereas the thing to me is like a really dense movie full of ideas. I and mean, it's also, it is utterly terrifying. I mean, oh, I think yeah. it's the most effectively scary films I've ever seen. But I, it, it's just one of those strange things that I just think John was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and, and you see that happen in film history. And you see it. You know, it's so often you go back and films that we now revere got, you know, decidedly mixed responses. I mean, 2001 was far from a critical darling when it was released. Uh, you know, Wizard of Oz had very mixed responses and was not a commercial success either. I mean, it, time changes our perception of things. And a lot of things that we now think of as, as the greatest or most important movies did not have the greatest response. But the thing was, was really... I don't know if anybody defended it at the time. And it really only, it was only, I think after kind of got a second life on, on home video and stuff that critics started to revisit it and go, wait a minute, this is kind of genius. Um, 
which I'm glad at least at least that did happen for it finally. But at the time, it was man, it was savage. I mean, it was you know there were there were people out for John's blood, which is just really silly when you look at that film and, and it, where it exists in the pantheon of movie making. Yeah, watching it now, I can't. I just, I mean, and plus everybody I know who is a film fan loves the thing, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy to think of a time when it was just like, oh yeah, completely dismissed, ignored or, 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 or despised. Like, I'm like, that's, that's a whole other universe to me. It's, you know, like, cause, cause to me, there's so many things about that movie that make it. Uh, one of the all-time great works of art, in my opinion. You know, I mean, I just not just a great horror film, but a great film. No, it's a great movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and, and like, like you're mentioning, there's hilarious things in it too. And certainly, anytime something goes wrong or a series of things goes wrong in my day, I always deliver it just like this. You've got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) Like just that delivery is great. Like there's so many. uh, Yeah, no, it's a, it's a perfect movie. And then, you know, certainly people would be like, Oh, you really, you're talking about the thing. Everybody talks about the thing, but uh, it was certainly underrated for its time when it came out. But now I think everybody knows how special it is. Yeah. And, and, and and the companion piece to me, which was escape from New York, which was the film just before it, was was better received, but not that well received. I mean, considering again how brilliant that movie is, and again how multi-layered and and hysterically funny in a subversive way, and very political and very you know John John you know makes movies that say a lot about the society. I mean, he uses horror as a kind of general trapping, or or in the case of Escape New York, more more sort of thriller than horror. But he, through those movies, he actually talks a lot about the world we live in. He's not just doing them as fun rides. He's also often got some real deeper ideas in there. And, and that, that even with Escape from New York, it got nice reviews in, in terms of his filmmaking and that it was kind of clever. But I don't think, I think, again, it wasn't until much later that people started recognizing, wow, this is kind of an amazing movie about politics in America and a kind of way that how, how we treat criminals in America and how we, treat, I mean, it just, it, it, it it, even that got overlooked and then the thing got trashed. And, and, and I think both of those movies stand up so well today. And yet at the time they were, you know, sort of an, eh and a, Oh, this is horrible. Uh, uh, I mean, I remember, I remember going and seeing escape from New York with my girlfriend at the time and we were both blown away and, you know, the theater was like a quarter full and the reviews had been okay, but you know, nothing to indicate how funny and smart and, what a rethinking of the whole genre of action and, and you know, and how, how subversive. I mean, Dan, I mean, I mean, I mean, John always has such a, he has a very subversive side to his filmmaking in the best way. And, and yet people seem to miss it mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and it's only much later that I think people caught on. I think, I think, I think they live might've been a turning point because that one was sort of wore its subversive politics on its sleeve. Oh, for sure. And, <laughs> And I think that kind of got people to start re-looking at the earlier work and going, hey, wait a minute, this guy's been talking about a lot of things for a long time. But I felt like that was when a lot of writers and critics started going, oh, he's, a, he's actually making films about stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to watch, you know, how, how he evolved over time. But th- there was definitely that period of uh, 
you know, going to They Live, especially where it's funny. I talked to somebody recently who he was like, you know, 10, 15 years younger and just saw They Live for the first time. And I was explaining to him, yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's a commentary about, uh, the, 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 you know, Reagan and the era of, 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 uh, of yuppies, you know, reigning over all of us and just, you know, like this whole period that he didn't even live through that he didn't know, but he still found it to be, you know, uh, relevant to today. Well, and, it's, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it is very much so in terms of its, you know, how, how the, the political class sort of messages and how, you know, I mean, it's not the specifics to Reagan are a little bit lost, which is too bad because yeah, yeah. it was it was an amazing satire for its time. But, yeah, I watched it not that long ago and it's still all those ideas are still there. And, you know, the current administration has its own psychotic way of doing messaging that mm-hmm. is even more out there. And and. You know, it still applies. Um, yeah. So it's, but yes, it's very funny to get older and realize that there's huge audiences that didn't grow up with these movies. And it's funny because these are movies that, you know, I saw as a, a young adult. I mean, you know, and I mean, when in 1980, I was 21. No, I was 19. So, because I was born in 61. So the 80s for me was this very formative decade where I went from, you know, 19 to 29. I was, I was a grown up, but a very young grown up. Um, and you know, there's most people out there weren't, weren't around in the eighties. I mean, most people now are younger and like these movies, either are things they've never seen, or they've seen them in a very different, you know, perspective as looking back on something. And it's a strange thing about life as you get older, realize, Oh yeah, people don't have that experience that I had. Um, it's just the way things are, but now I'm that old guy. I like, talk about the good old days <laughs> and you know, it's uh, the you know, thing I always used to laugh at when I was 25. Now I am that person. So, you know, hence life works that way. Yeah. So I was recently on, a, on another podcast uh, called Genre Grinder. And basically it just goes through different film genres of all types, uh, you know, cl- including slasher movies and uh, witch movies, like just random genres. And ah. uh, so he had me on to talk about nuclear panic movies. And I saw uh, a particular title for the very first time. And had no idea about it, and once again, it was very difficult to track down. And it's on your list, and it's actually I'm going to have to add it to mine now after having seen it. And that special bulletin, uh, I'm really glad you highlighted this one because it, re- yeah, it really unnerved me. And it's you know I I think I might have described it as kind of ahead. I, I described it as ahead of its time, but I mean at the same I th- I think that its commentary on the media was something, you know, that hadn't been really dived into. I I mean, maybe outside of network or something like that, but just its approach, too, and just being this news cast, and you're seeing it live as it occurs, and you're seeing everybody's reactions as events happen, it really created this immediacy that you, you don't always experience. And again, like, this was probably at a very potent time when people were thinking about this, uh, you know, nuclear attack again well sure i mean that was i mean in the 80s there were still you know the cold war was still very much you know sort of hanging over everybody there was still the feeling of you know we may not live very long that we may all blow yeah. each other up and special bulletin you know it, it's funny I, I i wasn't sure whether to include it because it was made for television sure but it was such an important piece of filmmaking that i did i included and ended up including a few tv pieces on my list because <laughs> it was it was sort of a really important you know ten years for for television as well as for feature films and that television was 
starting to move in these new directions. And Special Bulletin to me was remarkable. It was so experimental. It was so brave. Its style was so different. And it was something that TV had not been doing. I mean, TV in the 70s and it was, it was terrible generally. And, and Special Bulletin, no one saw it coming, which is it, it had a very much a kind of war, war of the world's effect. I mean, people yeah. were freaked out because you felt like you were watching a news show. And they did a great job of making this two-hour TV movie look like you're just watching this big live news event going on on TV. And so I think after like they first started air, they, 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 they threw on a disclaimer on the bottom of the screen going, what you're watching isn't real and it's, you know, it's a movie and it's fiction. And, but it was good enough that they felt they had to do that because I think, they, I think when they first started airing it on the East Coast, people were like panicking a little bit. So they quickly, like, my, I, just, I remember the story, at least, was that they, you know, before it aired across the country, they, they, they put a little thing on it saying, uh, please don't, please know this is fiction. Um, but it's great because yeah, essentially you're watching a live news reporting of a special event. I mean, of a special bulletin, you know, with the way they used to all the time in TV break in and go, you know, we interrupt this programming to tell you what's going on. And that was very common. Um, and in this case, it's a bunch of people, you know, who claim to have a nuclear weapon in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina and are threatening to blow it up. And it's just acted in, insanely well. And they did the smart thing of, not getting a lot of actors who were sort of household names um, so that there was a little bit like a feeling of like you could be watching real people. Uh, I mean, they're very known and established actors in terms of like if you knew actors, but if you were just somebody casually watching, you know, Ed Flanders was incredibly believable as a Walter Cronkite like news guy. You could have felt like, Oh, I just don't know who this guy is, but I guess he's a news guy. Um, Interestingly interestingly enough, (laughs) the guy who delivers that line, you got to be fucking kidding me from the thing is in special bulletin, right? I believe. Oh, is he? Um, I swear it's the same guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, David Clennon. Yeah. 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 Yeah, You're right. (laughs) Of course. No. And and again, a wonderful actor from that who worked a lot in that time. Yeah. (laughs) I'd forgotten it. Yes. Um, yeah, and that one's really the, the sad thing about Special Bulletin is it's it's still almost impossible to find. I mean, as far as less I looked, it's never been put out on DVD. It's never. I mean, it's just kind of you have to really seek it out, which is just crazy because it was such a huge influential piece. I mean, it was one of those first pieces in television that got people thinking outside the box in a way that we now take as normal. I mean, now again, a generation's grown up with TV as a place that people do, you know, incredible, experimental, brave, different things. And there's shows like Breaking Bad or Fargo or whatever that, that are, are odd and are surreal and are different and are, but at the time television was really all about like offending no one and doing the same thing has been done before and staying very, very, very safe. And it was only in the eighties that, that people started to get, let's take a chance. And this was a really incredibly brave piece of filmmaking. I, I think it may be Ed Zwick's best film as a director. I think so. Yeah. I um, think so too. It, and and it, it just seems criminal and odd to me uh, that it's never been made available. And I don't know why, I don't know if it's a rights thing or if it's a political thing or what the deal is, but it's, you know, it's, it's great. And if you ever, to anybody listening, if you find that if you have a chance to see it, uh, you know, sometimes it shows up on YouTube or stuff. People will put it up there. I think that's where and, I saw it. Yeah. You know, and then it gets taken down because of like, like you know, people, nobody owns it. But but you know, it's one of those things you have to kind of keep your eye out for. I, I think I saw it on YouTube. I think that was where I saw it more recently. Um, uh, I mean, I saw it when it first aired, which was just mind blowing because you just didn't know what you were watching, and it was so upsetting. 
because um, it was done so well. Yeah. Um, but that's when I really recommend people just keep their eyes open for it, and, and hopefully someday somebody will put it out there. And I, I, I'd love to know why it hasn't been. I mean, it just it was it was because it was very talked about. It got a lot of attention. It wasn't you know. I can't imagine that there isn't an audience for it. Yeah, you could do a double feature with uh, a film that's on my list that I won't go into great detail about because I talked to, I talked <laughs> enough about it on the uh, on the uh, Nuclear Panic podcast I just mentioned. Uh, Miracle Mile is really yes one of those uh, one of those movies, uh, much like Christine, actually that my dad and I really bonded over because we both loved it and. It, and it felt like this little discovery that we saw at a video store and thought the cover was interesting, didn't know anything about it. Um, maybe maybe, maybe there was like a, a, a pull quote from a critic that gave it four stars or something, and it was just like, oh, let's take a chance on this. <laughs> and we watch it, and uh, we're not prepared for how, uh, just how dark it ultimately becomes. But really, it's, it's interesting because it tonally it starts off as like this meet-cute romance, and it's really sweet and it's, you know, and then eventually turns into like after hours only with the threat of, of nuclear annihilation. So <laughs> that's, that, right. that's one of the best description. It's exactly it. That's yeah. And that to me is the perfect idea for a movie. Like if, if I, if that, if Miracle Mind <laughs> had been made, I'd want to make that movie. Cause that's just, uh, you know, there's so many possibilities and really his encounters with so many different people throughout that entire film is just completely memorable. And Anthony Edwards is just so good in that movie and always good and kind of underrated in my opinion. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, as we're talking about underrated films, I mean, I, I agree. I think a, a severely underrated actor or under acknowledged actor, I mean, who, you know, has not gotten, the chance, I think, to show the kind of range that I think he has, you know, and it's like everything in Hollywood. There's so much just luck and things involved. And uh, I mean, obviously, he's had a great career. I'm sure he's made a ton of, you know, made a ton of money doing this, doing ER. And, and, but, but, you know, I, somebody that I wish I could see in more movies and, and that I really enjoyed his work always. And he's wonderful in that film. Yeah, no, for sure. What would you like to talk about next, Keith? I'll let you choose the next title. This well, time. only because it ties in so interestingly, because I had a second nuclear panic movie in my in my list as well. So clearly, this gives you a sense of how big an issue this was in the 80s. There's a film called When the Wind Blows, which is an yes. animated film. And I haven't um, seen it. I haven't seen it, but my the, the person that hosts the podcast, uh, Gabe Powers, he, he raved about this one. So I'm going to check it out soon. It's a really affecting movie. It's 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 sort of the correlative opposite to in a special bulletin. You know, dealt with the, for the nuclear issue by being gritty and real, and you are there. And um, when the wind blows, is, is this sweet animated movie in it, and it, it, it about this elderly you know British couple. Um, and you kind of and again, I saw this at a film festival, and I didn't know much about it. I didn't know what it was about, which may have been the best way to see it. So I'm going to ruin it for people now, but. Uh, but you kind of you get the idea. You can't find the film without getting what you know. Only at a film festival can you wander into a movie and not think you're watching an animated movie and realize, oh, it's about the end of the world. Uh, but basically, it's this sweet British couple um, who there is a nuclear attack uh, and on on England and presumably the whole world, and you know they're left trying to survive after a nuclear war. Uh, but it's done in this very simple animated style. Uh, that's very touching, and it, it's the most heartbreaking. Movie. I, I don't. I, I think it's one of the movies I probably sobbed afterwards as much as anything I've ever seen in my life. It was so sad and so heartbreaking. Um, 
And it's just a remarkable piece of filmmaking, and it's not well known, which is too bad. It is findable. It is. It, it does exist on, on on DVD and Blu-ray, but it was you know it was not a success at the time commercially. It was critically very successful, but not not commercially. I think because maybe it was too sad. Um, but it's really worth it if you're if you're up for seeing something that yes, it's, it is affecting. It's watching two sweet old people trying to not die after the world's been blown up. But it's 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 also got a sense of humor. I mean, it's not just bleak. I mean, because they are so, they're so sort of out of it. They're like this classic stiff upper lip British couple who just, you know, we're going to get through. And even though there's like nothing around them but rubble and um, John Waters wrote the music, which is also kind of cool. And David Bowie did a song for it. And uh, I mean, a lot of really cool people got behind it because I think people really believed in what it was trying to talk about. Um, And it's, it's really, really worth seeing It, it. It's beautiful. And it's, it's it's terribly sad, but it does have a sense of humor at moments, and it's it's just the animation is just very moving, um, and something I just really recommend for people. And again, yet another way of approaching this issue of are we going to annihilate ourselves? You know that that films have come back to over and over again because it's something you can sort of capture on film in a way that you can't in other medium. And uh, there's so many ways you can approach it. Miracle Mile was a way. You know, earlier Dr. Strangelove had done it, uh, you know, War Game, Peter Watkins movie. I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of films have been made about the end of the world. Um, and, and you know, maybe they had a, a role to play in what became a huge movement in the 80s to fight back against the proliferation of nuclear weapons that, that maybe helped push, you know, some of the arms control talks forward is that there was a lot of popular resistance. And I think that, that these films actually may have been a part of that. Yeah, I think the day after... Uh, in particular, oh sure, yeah, that was. Ugh. Let's transition to a, something completely different. Um, Monsieur Aya, is that how you say it? Because oh god, I, I think it's Monsieur Ia. I think it's Ia. I mean, I'm I don't speak French, so I'm probably butchering it, and and hopefully people are out there laughing at me as as they hear this because I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. But that's how I I feel like that's how I heard somebody else say it. So okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about certainly in, in the case of De Palma, you know, the, the idea of voyeurism. Uh, this this movie is one of the uh, better explorations of that theme, and also just a really a really just enveloping mystery of sorts involving uh, someone who's like watching. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'm actually going to rewatch it probably within the year. Because uh, I do this like retrospective where I go back thirty years and watch movies, and we talk about them on a podcast, but also just like re-rate what I think the the my favorite movies of that year were. And I, this is considered a nineteen ninety release. I think it came out in the U.S. in nineteen ninety, and I've been meaning to go back to it anyway. But I just remember being really taken with this and finding it kind of Hitchcockian and just really. Um, a really interesting approach to telling kind of a love story of sorts. Am I, yes, am I right? <laughs> uh, but a story, a story, it's really story love, obsession. Maybe? I mean, it's, it's really, you know, about a guy who is a complete loner and I haven't seen it in, in years either, but I, I, I whenever we're just looking through my list of movies, I was like, Oh my God, that movie. And I think because it came out in France in 1989, I had it listed as 1989 because it was, uh, but I, I think you're right. I probably in the U S it was 1990. But what's remarkable about it, first of all, it introduced me to the filmmaker Patrice Lacombe, who I think is, again, one of the best filmmakers of, our, of the modern time. And, you know, just not that well known in the U.S., but the guy has, you know, he's worth 
he's worth seeking out as a filmmaker in general. He, he you know, he did the hairdresser's husband. He did uh, girl on the bridge. He did, I mean, he's, he, it's a huge long, long uh, resume of amazing movies. Yeah, for sure. Most of which critically were lionized here in the States, but never got much of a, of a mainstream release because they're French language. And, you know, sadly we're living through a time where fewer and fewer foreign language films get theatrical releases. But, but uh, you know, I think in France, he's, you know, he's one of their major filmmakers and, and, and uh, the Widow Saint Pierre is an amazing movie. I mean, he's a really great filmmaker, and this is my first time seeing one of his movies. And what's so powerful about it is, on one level, it's a story about this creepy voyeuristic guy who lives alone and is obsessed with a young woman from you know watching her. But be- between the direction and, and Michelle Blanc's incredible performance in the lead, you so come to feel for this guy. You so as creepy as he is, you know, it's one of those films that does that amazing thing of showing you somebody that by all accounts you should feel repelled by doing something that's kind of repellent in this obsessive, you know, watching this young woman who's murdered and, 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 and there's a question of whether he did it or not. Um, but, but you find yourself getting emotionally caught up in him and in his journey and in his story and, and, and caring about him in spite of yourself. And I think that's, one of the things that, that film does so well, and I think a good actor can help and good directors can do, I mean, Breaking Bad had some of that, you know, taking a character who's morally deeply questionable right. and yet making you get inside them and, and understand how they see the world, I think is an incredibly powerful thing. And this film was a, a great case of that. It's also just beautifully shot. It's got an amazing score by Michael Nyman, who, who uh, did, again, did a bunch of film scores in the 80s that got a lot of attention and uh, he was a classical composer who kind of got got uh, brought into doing uh, doing film scores, and he sort of has a Philip Glass like feeling. But I, I find his stuff much more emotional than Philip Glass. He's sort of a minimalist, but he somehow combined the minimalism <coughs> with much more um, emotional sort of through lines to his music, and it, it, it's very effective. And it's just an amazing movie. And again, difficult to find. I don't think there's ever been a Blu-ray release of it. Uh, although it's a gorgeous looking movie, it really should be. Even the DVD is hard to find, but it's really worth seeking out if you like thrillers, but character thrillers. I mean, it's not it's not about you know pulse packed tapping pace. It, it it is it is very tense, but it's very tense because of the behavior, not because of. I mean, there are a couple of great chase scenes in it, but it's really much more about about the psychology, and it's just a really remarkable movie that now that we're talking about it, I feel like I have to go back and watch it again. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's like, I, watch it I saw, I saw it like six time. times it was in the theater. I just kept going back and dragging my friends. Going, this is an amazing movie. You've got to come see it. And it was, it, it, it's, it's that kind of a film. Yeah. It's surprised. I'm surprised like criterion hasn't picked it up. You would think it's, it would be up their alley. That's, that's a title. You're absolutely right. I don't, you know, again, I, having been through this with some of my own movies, you start to learn that what's out on in what form and why, really often is, has nothing to do with artistic considerations. A lot of it has to do with who controls the rights, um, what they want to do with it. You know, a lot of the great movies that are, are out there are just because they're owned by five different companies and those companies can't agree on how to like split up the measly pie that they would get to let Criterion put it out or to let, you know, and so a lot of films sit on shelves because of those things, because of lawyers. That has nothing to do with people not wanting to. It has to do with like, you know, the people who own it not wanting to bother which is sadly common, and, and I've been through that with some of my own stuff, so I, I, I'm sure it happens with you know, other people's movies all the time. Well, I'm, I'm making it my life's work, at least for the next year or so, to see what I can do 
for Pump Up the Volume because you know we're coming on its 30, 30th anniversary next year. And, and it's an immensely popular film. That a it, terrific it, it movie goes, that saved my life, practically. <laughs> so, and that would I, I think would speak to a current generation just as well. And absolutely. I, you know, I mean, they are it's just completely un, unfathomable why that film isn't out there. But again, I'm sure it's because X company that put in 25 percent of the money went bankrupt, and no one can find somebody there who will sign off on the. It's like, you know, that's what that. It's probably about that. Yeah. No doubt. And you, earlier you mentioned like just the tension and, and you know some of the, some of the creepy nature going on within that film. Uh, there, there's a final act in uh, a movie that made your list here, Smooth Talk. That uh, oh, it's so that creepy. was on your list as well. I mean, it was like that was one that you know you you, you had a list that I agreed with a lot of. I mean, I was right with you. Um, and Smooth Talk is one of those quiet little movies. Um, that not many people even saw when it was out. It was not a big success commercially, although it was very successful critically, if I remember. Uh, it was a, a, a woman filmmaker at a time that women were just starting to finally be you know, allowed to make movies again and given that chance to have that voice. Um, and it, it's, it's a, a really incredible two-character film, essentially. I mean, there's other people in it, but it's really... Tree Williams and what I think is his best performance, and he did a lot of great work. But I, oh, yeah. I, I don't. Prince of the know. City is he's also great in that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! Another film that would be on both of our lists that we oh, can yeah. talk about. But but I mean, he in the eighties was doing remarkable work. Laura Dern, a very very young Laura Dern, a very different Laura Dern than people are used to now, playing a fifteen year old girl, um, also remarkable. And it's really this. It's just a character, a quiet character piece that is so full of tension and fearfulness where almost nothing happens. I mean, it's, you know, what's happening is all under the surface. It, it's a girl who's alone in the house and this sexy stranger shows up at the door. And the whole film is basically the flirtation between these two people is this, this grown man and this teenage girl and what's going to happen between them. And you understand why she's attracted to him. And yet you're sitting there going, this is a terrible idea. You shouldn't be talking to this guy. But you see why as somebody who's like coming to her own as a woman mm. that this guy's giving her attention. And but it's so powerful because it, it's so it, everything's under the surface. You know, very little is overt. Um, it's all, you know, the meaning of what people are saying, whether it's a threat, whether it's sexual, whether it, it, it's all in the performances, it's all in inference. Uh, it's from a Joyce Carol Oates story, who I think is a wonderful writer, who actually really was particularly having her moment in the in the 80s. Uh, it's a director named Joyce Chopra, who has not gotten a lot of other chances to show her work off like this. Uh, but it, it's a remarkable film, and it's one of those movies that, yeah, I think it shakes you and it stays with you, and it's incredibly haunting and incredibly tense. I mean, it's to me, it's much more tense than most Hollywood thrillers, and yet very little happens on screen. You know, it's just behavior. Yeah, um, it's about behavior and body language and just yeah. how people sometimes communicate without saying anything. Yes. Like it, you know. it, it is a disturbing movie. And yes, and, and it's a kind of, a, you know, in, in current parlance, it, it could very much be a trigger movie because it's mm-hmm. it's about sexual threat. And, and, you know, if you're somebody who's been through like a, an awful rape experience, it may not be like the movie you want to rush out and see. But it's... But it's very powerful for that reason. And it's funny because it's it's pre Me Too, but it deals with a lot of those issues in ways that I think are, are actually still very relevant. Oh yeah, 
you know, uh, because it it deals with that the problem with the fact that danger can be very sexually alluring, and yet it's danger, and you know that the very thing that a lot of young women find attractive. I mean, it's that old thing about you know girls falling for the bad boy. Uh, and how true that is. And I believe that's still true. I don't think that Me Too has necessarily changed that. I, I mean, I hope it, I hope it does because I think it's, it's such a, a, a uh, but there's always been that thing that like, you know, it's the guy that's, you know, pushing the edge that a lot of times are what very young women get attracted to because of our whole societal construct of what masculinity is, what femininity is. But, and the film really deals with that in a pretty amazing way. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's one of those two that probably could have been a play because like you mentioned there's only two central characters and certainly how things play out. Uh not not unlike something like Oleana, you know, it just that Oleana is obviously more driven by dialogue and pol- and sexual politics and, right. and all sorts of different things, but still just But the thing about the talk and I haven't watched it in a few years. I saw it maybe 7 8 years ago is it doesn't feel like a play. I mean, you're absolutely right. It could be a play. I mean, it's really two characters standing around and talking mostly, but somehow in the way that, that Chopra directed it, it doesn't feel stage bound. It doesn't feel like, you know, it, it feels very cinematic, even though it's not fancy. Right. Uh, there, there's just something about the way she directed it that it, it does. It doesn't feel like an adaptive play. Whereas like, I think the film of Oleana, which I really quite like, but it feels like an adaption adaptation of a play. It feels like yeah. you're watching, play yeah that's, that's the criticism somehow avoids that mm-hmm. yeah no definitely so tell me uh, speaking of plays uh betrayal now i haven't seen this but i'm a i'm a harold pinter fan so i need to see more of his work and his more of his adaptations well and if you're a harold pinter fan you definitely need to see it okay if you're well, a Jeremy well, irons fan you definitely need to see it if you're a ben kingsley fan you definitely need to see it it's oh, yeah. it's really an amazing uh, amazing film. Uh, it, it's 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 a Pinter play, and it's you know it's an adaptation for a film. It, it, it does feel because Pinter's dialogue is so not naturalistic. Mm-hmm. I think you're very aware of its theatrical roots when you watch it. It, it doesn't pretend that it wasn't a literary piece, um, but it doesn't feel stage bound. I think that 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 the director who's not somebody I'm, I'm, I'm from familiar with, a guy named David Jones, I, I wrote Peter Jones on my list, but it's actually David Jones, um, <clears throat> kind of does this great job of, of again, making it not just feel like you're just watching a play, when essentially you're just watching a play, just with it, you know, each scene takes place in a new location. And it's a fascinating construct that Pinter did, which is, he looks at three people who are in a sort of a love triangle, uh, uh, you know, two best friends, two male best friends, and a woman that they both have a passion for at different times in their lives, and one steals from the other, and <clears throat> and basically it tells the story backwards. Uh, the last, the first scene in the film is at the end of the track of the relationships and and the and where these people have all ended up, and then each scene moves back earlier in time until at the end of the movie you're you you see them as these very innocent, um, positive fresh face, best friends, all comfortable with each other. And, and it's got to got this feeling of almost tragedy to it because you see where it goes. You know, you look, you see where these people all end up <clears throat> and because of that. And it's, it's, it's very moving 
at the same time, it's it's you know, Pinder's always just such a clever writer, and it's full of just great dialogue, and, and and the actors are just remarkable. It was really, I think, the first thing that, at least that I was aware of, that that made sort of Ben Kingsley. I, I don't remember if it was before or after uh, Gandhi, but but it was it was sort of it, they were near each other in time, and it was incredibly important because it, for for Kingsley because. I think people saw Gandhi and they thought that's who he was, you know, that he, you know, he was so kind of good and disappeared so much into that historical figure. And he was so not known at that point outside of UK theater that I, he could have been trapped playing sort of, you know, aging, aging sort of near saint figures. And in this movie, he's, you know, sexy and disturbing and threatening and all sorts of interesting things, you know, that we now, now with movies like sexy beast, I mean, that whole side of him, he's been able to explore, but this was the first time he got to show that off. And, and Jeremy Irons, who had a couple of amazing films, you know, he's on a couple of movies on my list. There was this and Moonlighting that came out near each other. And, and everybody realized, oh, yeah, this guy's like great looking and all that, but he's a, 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 an incredible actor. Yeah, I, haven't uh, seen, I, think, I haven't seen Moonlighting either. And I, boy, I mean, after, after seeing Dead Ringers, I'm like, well, I, I'm a Jeremy Irons fan for life, so I need to see both of these now. Good. Well, yes, you do. Moonlighting is a really cool movie too. It's it's, it's Jersey Skolomowski, who I'm probably mispronouncing his name, who did a, a bunch of great movies. Uh, he's a, a fascinating Polish director. He did a movie called The Shout, which I love. Moonlighting is 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 a really interesting film. It, it's again very contained. It's about a bunch of Polish workers in London who have been brought there to uh, sort of rebuild a house, so like rebuild re, re a brownstone, completely renovate it. And they're being paid almost nothing, and it all takes place in this home, where you know where these guys are, are doing this reconstruction work. And Jeremy Irons plays the leader of the group, and it's a sort of a fascinating piece of casting. It's, you know, Jeremy Irons, who's so kind of gorgeous, upper class, British-looking guy, is playing this Polish laborer in Polish. He basically learned Polish for the role. Oh wow! Um, and one of Skolomowski's ideas was to hire this English guy because the idea is that this guy is from a slightly different class in Poland, that he's more of an upper-class guy from there, so that having a guy who even his accent was different and his whole essence was different would, would kind of speak to that class differentiation. But what a brave and strange thing to do to cast a British actor to achieve that. And Irons is amazing in it, and it's an amazing movie. And it's another of these movies where there isn't a lot of incident there isn't a lot of like big plot twists. It's just about what it's like to be from at that point still a, a communist country. Poland was still very much behind the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, who get a chance to leave and come to the West and be living in this incredibly different world that kind of, in some ways, thrills them, in some ways, terrifies them. Um, and knowing that they're being watched at all times because the last thing anybody can afford to do is have these guys kind of defect. Or so it's 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 sort of a pressure cooker movie without needing to have like a murder in it. You know, it, it's, it's sort of the very, the, the inherent situation has a tremendous tension. Um, that's just about what these people are in the middle of. And irons is great. It's shot really wonderfully. It's again, not easy to find. I think it exists on DVD. Um, but it's, it's really just one of those movies that stuck with me. And I ended up seeing a whole bunch of times and I found that each time I got more out of it because the relationships between these men, and that's really what it's about, is, is sort of this group dynamic of men working together, um, is really strong. And, there's, and it's so detailed, and it's sort of a thriller without a thriller. And, and it feels like a thriller, even though it's just about building a house. I don't know how to 
I feel like I'm not doing a good job articulating because it's, but there's certain movies that do that. I mean, Smooth Talk does it around sexual, you know, where, where without, you know, bloody, bloody knives and you're still on the edge of your seat. And Moonlight to me had that sort of feel. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking up uh, Skolomowski and uh, he, he co-wrote the script for Knife in the Water with Polanski. Yeah. Oh man. And he, he, he did deep end, which yes. when we do our inevitable next year, uh, underrated films of the seventies, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that one. Yeah. Whew. That, that's something that's, 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 that's a heck of a film. Uh, but yeah, those is, it's, it's really interesting to, uh, yeah. When you're, when you're talking about films that just sort of create this intimate space and let characters, you know, interact uh, also, I think of Death and the Maiden to some degree <laughs> with, that Polanski. Yes, did, you know, and that's that's another. Uh, speaking of Ben Kingsley, it's like it all ties together, doesn't it? <laughs> like all these people just sort of, uh, you know, create this this environment, and they you have to live with these characters to the point of feeling claustrophobic. And I like I like that experience. I like it when there's this. I don't know if it was the 80s or not, but there's, speaking of Jeremy Irons, wasn't there a, a Madeline Stowe Jeremy Irons movie that I'm thinking of? Oh, gosh. Oh. Were there, uh, Closetland? Is that the, is that one? No, that was Alan, I think that Closetland was oh, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is also a, a really interesting movie. I haven't seen it forever, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely worth seeing. Oh, it came out in 91. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, it doesn't. We, we can't acknowledge it because it's, you know, it's not, it's the 90s. <laughs> well, it's funny. One of the things I realized about the 80s when I was putting together this list, mm-hmm. it was a weird decade for it was film. It weird. Because you had a lot of the great directors were either past their prime or were literally dying or stopping making movies or were making movies that weren't. I mean, I mean, there are obviously exceptions that you could come up with a million exceptions, but, you know, so many of the people, like whether it was Hal Ashby or Cassavetes or Fellini or. Yeah, that were either kind of on a downside of their career or were just making work that wasn't their very best or were stopping or were dying or, and the new generation people like that we talked about Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson or any of the Andersons or I don't know, Olivia Assayas or people that we now think of as the most important generation hadn't really kicked in yet. And it was a bit of an odd decade, which I hadn't thought of until I started making a list of movies in that you didn't have many of the great world-class filmmakers doing their best work in that decade. You had great movies, but they would tend to be more one-offs um, than you might normally see. Like, I think more things on my list are not by people that I would think of as one of like the 50 most important filmmakers of all time. Um, and it was a strange decade that way. As soon as you get into the 90s and aughts, you get the next generation coming up of people that are now our great filmmakers. And the second you get earlier to the 60s and 70s, you have all the great filmmakers that I grew up on and all the, you know, you know, Scorsese at his very best, Kubrick at his very best. All, but the '80s were a strange decade. Um, you know, they were a little bit between two worlds. Yeah, no, definitely, and certainly someone like Scorsese was struggling a little bit because the films that he ventured to make in the early '80s there were were unexpected at the time. You know, yes. doing dark comedies the way he did. And yet had, you know, had a lot to say about, uh, you know, fame and masculinity to, to a large degree. And just, you know, also kind of, you know, it's interesting to think about the King of Comedy as like an inversion of Taxi Driver and just, you know, treating it more comedically, but also it's still being incredibly sad 
uh, you know, just this this character who wants to succeed, who wants to connect, and simply can't because of his, you know, odd personality or overbearing personality, however you want to put it. But I mean, when I first saw the King of Comedy, I was I, I was floored by it, and I was in a different way. Uh, as taken with it as something like Taxi Driver, even though it's a completely different tone. Yeah, I, I I thought it was one of his bravest and most interesting movies because it was such a, I mean, and, and a film that you had listed, which I also feel that way about, which is After Hours. I mean, they were both yeah. films that he made that were not what everybody had come to expect as a quote-unquote Scorsese film. And I think it led to both films being somewhat overlooked. I mean, they were... Uh, I mean, he's a filmmaker I think was still doing incredibly great work in the 80s. I just don't, but I don't think he got, they, they weren't the films that were getting the kind of attention that his earlier stuff got or that he came back to later um, because they were a little bit more offbeat. Um, and King, yeah, King of Comedy is an odd movie. And that's kind of what I think is great about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Scorsese was a, is a great enough filmmaker. They didn't want to just keep remaking gangster movies only or, or deeply violent movies or, so he, you know, took up this kind of character comedy, but really dark, disturbing character comedy. And, and, and in a way, both of those films, both After Hours and King Comedy, are dark, disturbing character comedies. After Hours is more fun. It's more, it's a, you know, it's a nighttime romp. It's a guy goes out on a date, and essentially everything goes wrong. And by the end of the night, he's, you know, he's been through hell and back. And it's funny, but it's like, it's funny in that way that you're laughing, but you also are cringing and and just praying he survives. Yeah. Uh, at, at times, at times Paul is kind of a dick in that movie. The way he, the way he acts yeah. towards women, it's like, Oh, uh, maybe you deserve this kind of. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's also, I think, I think it's a really good point. And I think that's what makes Scorsese a great filmmaker is that he doesn't let any of his characters off the hook. I mean, that same movie. And I think people have done a lot of after hours like movies, but, but generally the guy is just this core victim. And somehow that doesn't then have the same sting to it. The fact that this guy is a bit of a dick and he is a self-involved hipster, New York young guy who, you know, treats women kind of weirdly. And he, it's what happens to him is out of, out of line with his flaws, but it comes out of his flaws. And I think that that's what makes that film have more resonance than a lot of other movies I've seen that are like, Oh, everything just goes wrong. Cause he does in a certain way, set things in motion. And I think it's it's that's where Scorsese's moral sort of sensibility makes the film transcend and become more than just a bunch of wacky scenes. Um, and King of Comedy is the same way in that the main character is incredibly sad and pathetic, and he's also dangerous and violent and awful. And and it, the film fascinatingly questions, you know, to what extent is that part of his success or failure? Uh, in ways that are not expected. Um, and it's one of those movies you laugh at and you feel like, I shouldn't be laughing at this. Um, it has really interesting, disturbing ideas about fame, about comedy, about what's funny, about why we think of people as funny. Um, it's, it's a wonderful movie, and it's, it's very playful, but it's full of very serious ideas. And I think people didn't quite know what to make of it when it came out. I mean, I know it didn't do that well, or at least I don't remember doing that well, because I was... I was living in New York, which was the nexus of Scorsese land, and I remember that being, again, very unusual that I went like opening weekend and it wasn't jammed, and the reviews were, I thought, okay, but they weren't amazing, because I think it, was, it wasn't it was Taxi Driver, it wasn't, you know, Mean Treats, it wasn't, it wasn't this serious, dark, 
thing. And people, what they people missed is, yes, it may be an even more effective way to examine some of those issues in a different way than he had done before. Um, and it's wonderful because he uses all of his filmmaking style. I mean, it's, it's, it's no less full of great images than his other movies, but it's been adapted to comedy and in a way that is, it's, yeah, it's like if you married, you know, Taxi Driver to a wacky character comedy, this is what you'd end up with. And if that sounds strange to somebody who hasn't seen the movie, that's a great reason for you to see it. Yeah, I hope <clears throat> I hope most of my listeners have seen these movies by now. It's it's really interesting when I did an episode on uh, Scorsese with uh, with with a Chicago film critic, uh, radio broadcaster, friend of mine who you know is kind of responsible too for to some degree for me getting into film the way I have, and I believe he posited the theory uh, that what happens after he leaves Jerry Lewis's uh, house none of that actually happens in reality. In, like, it's all, I don't want to say it's all in his head, uh, in Rupert Pupkin's head, but I never, th- I never knew that there was this theory floating around. I mean, th- I think people have said that about the ending of Taxi Driver to some degree. Like, yes. But I didn't know that there was this, uh, a faction of people. Oh, I, who I actually do remember. I remember that conversation happening. I remember that. And I remember thinking that it was a valid and really interesting theory. I mean, that you can absolutely make a case for it, yeah. I think, in that, in that, that, that some or all of what happens is absolutely not real. Uh, just like you can at the end of Taxi Driver. And, and it is an interesting twinning of those two movies because they are, there are similarities. This is basically in some ways the black comic version of Taxi Driver in a funny way in terms of somebody wanting to find their place in the world through very awful means. Um, but it, no, I think, that's a, I think that is definitely a question mark. And I, and I do remember at the time, even with just friends, the debate about is any of that real? Is all of it real? You know, what does it say if it is real? What does it say if it isn't real? Um, so yes, I think that's one of the good things about the film is that it leaves you having to work a little bit to decide what ultimately the real story is, because you're you're essentially following such a, such an unreliable narrator that even though it's not a subjective film, you're not, you're not inside his head. It is still his story. And this is somebody who's clearly crazy and psychotic and, and not perceiving reality the way somebody standing outside might. And it's hard to say whether the film has just entered into his brain to the point where you're now seeing his vision or whether it's truth. Yeah. Yeah. And those are interesting questions to, to wrestle with afterwards. Um, so why don't we talk about one more before we get close to wrapping things up here? What, pick something that you really want to highlight from your list. I know there's, well, a, there's a lot of, here. But. Yeah, I know. It's so hard because these are all things I love. And my, but my hope whenever I do these things is that even if your audience are film fans, that I'm, I'm naming some things they haven't seen. Because I, as somebody who's a film fan, I'm always reading articles. I'm like, oh, I never saw that. And it you know, makes me go and check, check out a movie I, I just managed to miss. Yeah. So well, you've definitely what, done that for me. So. <laughs> well, and, and you for, for me. And I think it's the fun of this stuff. I think you know, you're always hoping to pick things that people aren't just sitting there going, oh, yeah, I know that one. So, so one that I really love that I think people don't know here very well is a film called Distant Voices Still Lives, mm-hmm. um, which is a film by a, by a British filmmaker named Terence Davies who's done a, a, really a lot of interesting work over his career. But this to me is the strongest of all his films. And, and it's very rare that you can say about a filmmaker that they have a unique language. You know, there have been a few, there's Fellini, there's, you know, there occasionally you get those filmmakers that like don't make movies like anyone else. And to me, you know, Terrence Davies is one of those people. His movies, especially I think his best movies, 
are not like anybody else's movies. They're, they're literally like poetry, um, but a film. And uh, if that sounds good for you, though, it isn't. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, Distant Still Lives is a memory film. Uh, and based in his own memories of growing up in, in, in England uh, in the in the World War II and post World War II era, working class uh, with a in a very dysfunctional, violent family with all sorts of problems. Um, but it's told in these little vignettes. These little sometimes it's just one shot, and sometimes it's just thirty seconds. Sometimes almost nothing happens. It's kind of with Faulkner. Sometimes you might write a chapter in a Faulkner book novel. It's like a page. You know, I mean, or that famous thing in uh, As I Lay Dying where there's a whole chapter that's just like one sentence. And, and uh, Davies can have some of that. I mean, sometimes it's just a, a moment. And, and as an audience, you have to kind of see these different fragments of this mosaic of what this family's life was like. This, this difficult, but sometimes sweet, sometimes violent, sometimes kind existence. How these tiny little moments that you see, sometimes a few minute long scene. You have to sort of decide what the chronological order is, how they fit together, what the whole piece says. But somehow he does it with such heart, and the images are so beautiful and so striking that it never just feels like an intellectual puzzle. It doesn't just feel like, oh, it's clever deconstructionalism. It, you know, it, he, it's so personal to him, clearly, as a filmmaker, that it transcends that. It's true. It is a sort of deconstructionalist experiment. You could write all sorts of articles about, like, what, how experimental the filmmaking is, but it also you sit there and you laugh and you weep and you understand what this young boy went through growing up in this family. Um, but while watching a movie, it's not like any movie you've ever seen before. Um, and it's just, all I can say is it's like, it's like great poetry um, and really worth, if you haven't seen his work, it's, it, he, he used that style in a number of movies, but that, that I think is the pinnacle of it. And it's one of those films that I think is seen as a, true classic in England. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of like, it's extremely well known there, but it never really got that kind of attention here. So there may be people hearing this who, who just don't know it, in which case I really, really recommend seeking it out. It's, it's quite special. I'm going to see that one because I've seen, <laughs> I've seen that nearly everything else. I've seen A Quiet Passion, which I thought was great. Uh, the Long Day Closes, which I think is kind of, isn't that a part of his trilogy? Kind of yes. Like, well, a lot of is in some ways is some ways a sequel to uh, Distant Voices Still Lives. Ah, okay. Uh, he has a thing called the trilogy, which is actually his first his first known pieces, which were three shorter films that were put together into one feature length piece, hmm. which was really about growing up gay as a Roman Catholic in in England. Um, and one is about a very young boy. One is about a man in the prime of his life, and one is about death. And in each case, and they're all, it's actually quite beautiful as well. It's, it, it's more the seventies and the eighties, or it might've made this list of uh, the first two shorts that were made in the seventies. And that is also seeable as a feature because they, they was somebody came up with the, the realization that, Oh, you can put these three together and these three, like 40 minute shorts make one movie. Uh, and they're, while the characters don't necessarily neatly overlap, the themes are so tied together and it's incredibly powerful, but, and, and it established that kind of, again, poetic storytelling style. Um, but but this was yeah this this and um, this divorce is still lives and long day closes are really more of a of a whatever the two film equivalent of a trilogy is I guess a a duet about about growing up in England at that time but I I think this voices is the stronger of the two so if you liked long day closes I think distant voices which is I think more emotional and darker mm -hmm. uh, 
Long Day Closes is a little bit sweeter and happier. Yeah. Uh, and as somebody who's often drawn to the dark side, <laughs> uh, I, I found that one the more powerful of the two. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to get on that. I mean, certainly a lot of the titles you brought up I'm going to catch up with and, you know, we'll talk about next time because uh, there's, there's just so much. <laughs> oh, it's impossible. I mean, I, my initial list for this was way over 100 titles. Oh, and then yeah. just editing it down was literally painful. Because I, I can't take that. Oh, I can't take that. It's like because there's just so many great movies. It's like there's a reason that people like you and I spend way too much of our time watching these things because they're great. Yeah, and then part of me is like, I need to be writing too. <laughs> I need to be doing other things and creating my own ideas. But like at the same time, you watch some of these movies and then you you feel inspired because you've seen up you've seen yourself in, in on screen to some degree, or you've had an experience that mirrors what's on screen, and you feel more connected. And that's it's a huge reason why I love films. It's not it's not like this necessarily like oh I you know I I only want to watch movies that I can relate to or I can find characters that I can empathize with. I like it all. I like I like the challenges of sometimes watching movies where there are characters that I can't empathize with. So I think a lot of the titles you brought up here um I, th- I know a lot of people will be excited to seek out and I know I know I am. Uh so you know and like I said at the top at the top you remain one of my f- favorite people to talk film with uh you know like i mentioned christine was one of the many films that my dad and i bonded over and i became really into like old 45 records and stephen king and your character in that is just it's 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 iconic to uh, you know in my circle anyway and 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 so memorable and never and i never would have thought like i'd be i'd be having the pleasure of talking to uh the the guy who played arnie arnie cunningham you know so this is really really special for me and i can't thank you enough for well i thank you for having me i mean it's a very it's very mutual i i i love your taste in movies i mean when you sent me your list of titles i was like love that love that love that love that love that (laughs) and and again i feel inspired too there are things that were on your list that i haven't seen that i'm gonna go check out because again i feel like your taste is so good and you have such an interesting way of looking at movies that Anything you like, I would want to see. So I, it, it's a very, it's a very mutually beneficial conversation. So, yeah, uh, and and I really, and you make this fun to do. So thanks for letting me be part of it. Oh, thank you, man. Uh, we'll talk again next year. Uh, hopefully, if there's time. I, obviously, if you're busy, I understand. But we do want to continue our underrated films conversations. I, I wouldn't miss it. I will look forward to it. See and you know, and maybe I'll, I'll see you in Chicago. That would be great. Um, drop me a line when that happens, when you're in town. I mean, at the very least, we can meet up for coffee or something and just, you know, talk in person. It would be a real honor. Yeah, like the, the two human beings face-to-face would be, you know, I mean, I love the electronics still thing. Happens. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it would be nice to actually have, like, eyes. So there well, you go. And you definitely have to go to the Music Box Theater to see a movie because it's a classic. Oh, I, 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 you know, I, I love Chicago. I've been to Chicago. I mean, I haven't been there in a little while, but I, but if, it, if the Music Box is the way I remember it, it was it was pretty great. Yeah, it still is. It's a, my favorite place to go. Awesome, Keith. Well, thanks again. We'll be in touch, okay? All right, my friend. Later. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Please visit VoicesVisions.net as well as NowPlayingNetwork.net. Of course, you should follow the work of Keith Gordon. Uh, check out his old films, but also I'm sure he's going to come up with some great new projects. Stay tuned for that. And uh, thank you to him once again. What a great guest. I wish you could swim Like dolphins Like dolphins can swim
Nothing will keep us together 